This is the Self-Taught or Not podcast with Dylan Israel and Eric Hanchett, where we teach you the do's and don'ts of software development from two software development professionals, one self-taught and one not. Before we begin, I just have a quick word from our sponsor, and today that's actually me. My name is Eric, and I have this really cool course called View360 at viewcourse.tech. Make sure you go to viewcourse.tech. You can get a free cheat sheet on Vue.js. Basically, Vue 360 is an immersive program to learn Vue.js for beginners, intermediate, Vue developers, even for advanced developers. So this will get you all the way from how to create a Vue app to how to create a Vue app right when you're in the job. So make sure you go to viewcourse.tech and you can get a free cheat sheet and learn more all about it. All right. So we have a nice little... Uh, topic. I actually came up with this based off of my buddy Matt's channel, who's popular for reality versus expectations uh, with a bunch of careers. I said, why don't we do our own on software engineering and really working in the industry? And so that's what we're going to talk about. Some of the stuff that we expected, but wasn't really the reality of how the world works. And even those things that just surprised us, forget expectations, but just realities we had no idea about. I'm excited for this topic. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that you know I thought of when I was first joining the the web development world that I think are are definitely different. And also, I kind of want to touch on if we have time, we might touch on a few other things that uh, kind of in tech in general that I think it'll be fun to talk about expectations versus reality. So I can jump in here first. Let's just let's just jump in. All right, jump so in, my Eric. First, jump in. Thank you. Yes. So I think this is a this is one we've all experienced. So when you before you get into web development, your kind of expectation is, okay, cool. I'm going to go. I'm gonna, once I get hired, I'm going to be sitting in front of a computer and I'm going to do something I love. I'm going to be coding all day long. I'm going to be finding interesting problems and fixing them, and and that's going to be my job. Uh, but in reality, that's actually not like it at all. Uh, you maybe have and I've heard it as low as three hours, but you usually have four to six, maybe four to six hours of real work you can do every day. Sometimes that's low as three hours. Um, and the rest of the time you're doing code reviews, you're uh, dealing with standups, uh, lots of different meetings, especially in this, this day of age now where all of us are working from home. My meeting load is just tripled. I don't know, it's quadrupled, I guess because everybody's having more and more meetings. I'm getting pulled into side meetings with my boss and a bunch of other people. There's constant interruptions through Slack. Uh, hopefully you turned off your social media, but if you're like me, you might actually get some interruptions from Twitter or Facebook or somewhere else like that. Um, working from home now, I get interruptions from my, my son and daughter who like to come up and ask me questions right in the middle of me coding. So that, that happens a lot too. So really, uh, you think you're going to be coding all day, but it's it's really, you can only get about, you know, three to four or five hours of real work done every day. I know, is that your reality versus expectation? Oh yeah, definitely. I, um, I thought I was just going to be soloed. Cause like you have that stereotypical like hacker in the dark with the hoodie on and they're just going to leave me in the corner. It's not like that at all. We, <laughs> it's, um, there's a lot more collaboration. There's a lot more of, um, uh, really communication, uh, aspect of it. And, you know, your job isn't just to write code. Your job, that's a large portion of your job. And that's why you get, you know, that's where your technical abilities come. But 
you need to do things like code reviews. You need to do things like understand requirements and and meetings. And about half my day is uh, that in meetings. I have probably two hours plus a day of meetings on average. And so it's like a fourth of the day is just making sure everybody's on the same page. And, and um, you know, I might, in, in some days I don't even write code. I'm just helping facilitate things for other people. But generally I would say about half my day I'm right. I'm actually physically writing code yeah same for me it's just I, I i think it's just the the nature and the world that we live in some days though if i'm like in i know i got a big project done like the slack i turn the slack uh interruptions off you can kind of mute slack for a while then uh you know i try to find some place where i won't get interrupted and i just grind away and, and time just flies by on on those days but it seems like it's just too many interruptions to be able to do that consistently every day. And that's why also I'd say a lot of software developers are not great at deadlines because we think like, oh, yeah, we can knock that out in a couple hours. But when the couple hours come and you get 10 interruptions and then you figure out, oh, I need to talk to this person about this, then all of a sudden it doesn't get done. What else do you got? What, what do you got first, Dylan? So the I mean, this is kind of a little bit similar to the last thing that we just talked about, but. I had no idea Agile was a thing. Like I remember interviewing and being like, what do you know about Agile? I was like, listen, I'm fast at writing code. And so I was thinking, uh, um, but like, I didn't know, uh, you know, methodologies or, or, um, you know, whether we're talking about, um, oh my God, I'm forgetting the name of some of these Agile um, groups. You have um, Scrum, for instance. I didn't know that this was, I didn't know there's a, a method to the madness, really. I just thought, Hey, we want this. Cool, I'll go build it. And that was that was how naive I was as a aspiring developer. Yeah, I think same thing with me. You know, it's not taught well. It, it's actually it was taught in. I, I'll take a step back. I'm trying to remember back when I was in college, and for a CS degree, we did have a whole semester, and we did talk about waterfall methods, and we talked about agile, and extreme programming. We went through a lot of different methodologies. So it wasn't completely um, foreign to me when I I actually got into my first job. What was foreign to me, though, is that a lot of jobs don't don't do it right, or they don't do it at all, or they do it their way, or you you hear this term agile and name only. So there's a lot of caveats and pitfalls. And so it's not not really clear how you do agile and what the best practice is. it, there is a best practice way of doing it, but a lot of companies do it different ways. Um, so that, that I do, I do remember having some semblance of how it worked, but I definitely um, hadn't done it every day and wasn't sure exactly all the nuances of it. Yeah, you got the uh, super agile. Is the uh, those that, that whenever I hear super agile when I'm like interviewing for a job, I run like hell because that just means that basically all we do is stand up and we change our requirements daily. Yikes! I've never heard of that super agile. You, you you never you never you've never had like um you never heard like someone saying you know they they basically go and they change something and fi- you know after they just told you what it was at stand at uh you know your sprint planning and they're like well we're agile we need to be super agile and you know it's like they basically just start saying agile for hey we're gonna change everything on a last minute notice because that's agile it's not really right uh, a lot of a lot of organizations you go and you practice scrum but really as you said in name only basically all they do is stand-ups once a day for 15 minutes 
Exactly. Or, um, I, I think I said this in a previous podcast, we are agile as in lowercase agile and not uppercase agile. So, and it gives people excuses to make, like you said, requirements changes. That's funny. I, I did have one on, on agile too. So that, that was on my list. Let's see. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a little controversial one. I want to see if you agree, Dylan, not, um, you don't. So my, my expectation was that to get a job as a web developer, especially working on the front end, that you had to be good at design and CSS and animations and transitions to be like a really good web developer. And what I found is that that's actually not technically true. So depending on the job you have, you actually might have a designer that designs, or you might have a third-party company that, that you guys work with to create the design. So not being able to design is not a requirement to be a, a, a web developer or front-end developer. And also, uh, for the most part, all these really cool like CSS animations and transitions and people like just the other day I saw someone created the whole Simpsons in CSS and they had like blinking eyes and it was really cool. Like you never end up, 90% of that stuff you never end up using. You might use like some basic transitions and, or animations just to move something from one side of the screen to the other on like a home page. But most of the time, at least in the jobs I have had, we, you're just dealing mostly with inputs and forms and maybe a little bit of design here and there, lots of uh, crud. So you're dealing more with the JavaScript part and less about the design. And then also, I mean, it's worth pointing out too that that even in some really highly specialized jobs, you may be, uh, they might have a special person that just does CSS and HTML all day long. They just convert designs over from a designer to that HTML CSS. And I'd say there's a couple of caveats, obviously, if you're working at, a, at an agency that's constantly getting in new projects. And I think uh, that's, uh, you work sort of as a larger agency. Dylan, maybe you, you see this more often where like a client comes in and now you're constantly having to create these new homepages. But if you're working in one app for a long time, like you often don't need to know a whole lot of CSS other than the basics. I mean, I mean the box model, things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I've, you know, when I'm mentoring people and they ask, they ask that question, like, how well do I need to be able to, you know, design this and that? And it's like, that's more UI UX. And are you going to need to know how to organize a page? Yeah. Are you going to need to know basic CSS? Of course you are. But you don't need to be an animation master. You don't need to be able to design a website. That's not, that's, I mean, it's a portion of development. It's oftentimes not a very important part of development. As you go and start working at these larger companies, you'll have someone who will give you the mocks. And a lot of us, I don't think a lot of people realize how many organizations are really just going to have you build back office tools. I mean, there are roles where you're going to be building client side facing stuff where it needs to look a certain way, it needs to feel a certain way because the marketing has decided and the UX side has decided, but someone's going to hand you that. Most of us, or I'd say a good portion, maybe we'll split it down the middle. I'm not quite sure what the breakdown is, but a lot of us are going to be building internal applications to help businesses run, and they don't give a shit what it looks like. They're like, does it make sense? Does it function? Cool, use Angular Material, use Bootstrap, um, make it orange. Like they really, <laughs> Most of the time, they don't care. And um, sort of a side tangent on your um, or a comment on your animations for people looking to make their site so a little bit more reactive. You know, there's a couple settings I use when I go and 
when I go and uh, set like global CSS variables. And one thing I set is I set a uh, I set a transition on all for um, three tenths of a second, so that anything that does change, it already has a transition built in, and that transition is about ninety five percent of all what users are looking for. Just sort of a smooth, quick transition, rather than having to go and create these, you know, these. 3D level chess sort of animations. And don't you find too, like, I mean, that's a nice tip just doing like a simple transition like that. But also I, I keep on seeing these articles of like about like six CSS properties you've never heard of. And they're like these things that like clip art and all these things like I've like, you're going to use once in a blue moon. And then, then the problem too with some of those things is that like you got to look at browser compatibility because maybe it works in Firefox, but it doesn't work in the latest version of Chrome or, or maybe you have to have the latest version of this to get it working. So it feels like still CS, the CSS world is a little fragmented on all the really cool new things coming out. It's almost like there's two types of developers out there. There's the developers that came from like a design background that really liked that part of it. They're really, they really liked the visuals of creating websites. And so when they jump into the CSS world, they're like, wow, look at all these cool things I could do. I can do these animations. I can make this really beautiful design. And then there's people like maybe Dylan or maybe me that are like, okay, cool. Like, can we get a functioning thing working? Does it look decent? Well, obviously, we don't want to make it look ugly. And then can we do the cool stuff in JavaScript and, and talk to the back end? That's where I'm more interested in. Yeah, that's I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. And like, don't get me wrong, I like something to look good, but like it, I like it to make sense and actually work. And we can we can pretty it up later on. It's like uh, it's like the women I'm looking for, Eric. It's the inside that counts. Okay, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, on the on the CSS stuff, I just uh, we st- started using a property I didn't even know existed. Where um, God, I forget what it is even called, but essentially what it does is it can take a paragraph tag or a, a group of text and you can limit the amount of lines it wraps to. So let's say I have 5,000 lines of text and I only want it or 5,000 characters of text. And I only want on the page for it to be, to go three or four times. Not like I have to modify the string, but it'll actually just stop the characters from rendering out based on how many lines you specify. It was, uh, it's pretty cool stuff, but again, you have the browser compatibility and, you know, a while back, I was hearing all about CSS Houdini and all this sort of stuff. And I, I honestly, I looked into it one time and it's doing a bunch of crazy stuff, but I, I haven't heard too much about what all that's even uh, Google's trying to do with all that stuff. So it's, it's CSS is one of those things that there hasn't been a good way to polyfill things like you can with older versions of JavaScript. And it'd be nice if someone could figure that out, but it may not be possible. So um, another thing that I had some very unrealistic expectations on and I've had to sort of push back. I, I the comment in here in my notes, I have hold the line. And what I mean by that is that um, you're going to be pressured to deliver something as quickly and dirtily as possible at every organization. There's a, there's a very high sort of belief in, and this isn't necessarily a strike against my current company or it's just companies in general. They're going to put pressure to sort of get something out. And it's it's like I, I went into software engineering thinking that there is going to be a um like we want the most we want something performant, it's gonna deliver. Um, you know, it's a little bit 
maybe a not not necessarily perfectionism, but there is a high emphasis on quality. And I, I don't think that's really the reality. I think the emphasis is on delivering features faster and businesses being more okay with technical debt to a point. And you know, some some advice about that is you as a as a software engineer, you're the one who has to hold the line where that technical debt stops. But that was something I truly wasn't expecting at at as I went into sort of development. I've seen the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I think the the it depends on where you work and, and once again no strike on either one of our employers. But it, it seems like as long as the UI and the front end and the the feature basically works it doesn't matter if you had to literally put it together with you know with shoestring and gumdrops as long as it works like they don't really care that much because you've and you just need to get it out there basically yeah it's um and it and you know one thing i i say as you go and you start working with the business and your team members that sort of represent the the requirements and all that is that you don't ever want to just say no, but you want to present solutions to problems and you want to be able to deliver the feature in a timely manner and figure out a healthy balance. Oftentimes, if you just say yes, 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 uh, what you end up doing is painting yourself in a corner because you create too much technical debt or people who are less technical in nature sometimes assume things are easier. Like, I don't know how many times... Uh, I ask somebody for clarity on something and they say to make it optional to make my life easier is like, no, actually, when you make something optional, essentially means you've created two branches instead of just making it required. You've actually increased my my workload uh, to a degree. So some of these things, um, if you were able to provide um, some 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 insight, you could solve some of these technical items that maybe they're going to create that technical debt for, but that's not always going to be the case. You know, I've technical debt's sometimes a bad word in organizations because like you said, people want to get things out fast and they want quickly. And, and that's the the driving force of everything. And when you bring up technical debt, it's like, Hey, if we kind of don't do this the right way and we do it the quick way, you know, it's going to kind of incur all this debt and people are like, well, what first, I've I've been in places where technical debt like it's not really understood very well like what exactly is technical debt, and so people are like just, just get it out the door. Why can't we get it out faster? Why can't we do it? I mean, it's just this super pressure of of getting it out as quick as can. And then sometimes I've heard of some organizations that actually have sprints that are just like technical debt sprints where you can go back and like fix all the stuff that you broke or fix all the stuff that like you had to just put together really quickly and there's a better way of doing it. Have you ever worked at a place like that? Um, I would say uh, what I've, I haven't had sprints dedicated to it, but what I have had done is I've, I've had um, where we do something like 80, 10, 10 or 80, 20, where um, 80% are new features. Might've been 70%. I don't remember the exact breakdown, but essentially the majority is new features, new development. Uh, then there's a percentage of bugs. Then there's a percentage of technical debt that we took in every sprint so that we're slowly sort of windling that down. And I think that's a fair way of going about it, uh, where now all of a sudden you are you're delivering things faster. But, you know, because it's it's a it's a snowball with technical debt when at some point when you say, 
because I've I've worked on projects where it's got so bad where they the tech the technical debt has grown so much that they say, hey, what we want is when we go this when we click this link and then go back to this page, but the technical debt is grown so bad that you have to refresh the whole app for that page to load properly. And so a small task that should be a one point story starts getting into the five or eight, a very large story to do properly. And so I think I think those the um, breaking out a little bit of technical debt, some bugs and um, you know feature. I think uh, in every sprint is the way to go, and that's how I've done it in the past. I, I really did like it. And I also say technical debt. If you if you guys are listening to this, basically I like this definition. It's basically anything code based or not that slows or hinders the development process. So it's usually older code or ways that you handle code in the past that needs to going to be shored up and rewritten and fixed. and Because what happens is, I think I've said this in a previous podcast, like your code base gets bit rot. I don't know if that's the right word, but it just rots after a while, especially if you have multiple people working on it for multiple teams. Like somebody will have one coding style and someone have a different coding style and then things just don't quite work right. And maybe you're picking, fixing these a lot up in code reviews, but sometimes code reviews don't pick it up or sometimes someone just misses it in a code review and then you just kind of get this infrastructure that becomes unmaintainable after a while which is very unfortunate yeah and i think people and businesses don't really realize the severity of technical debt um you know it's very it's very easy to be focused on the sexy the oh hey we delivered a feature our stakeholders are happy and and um that's all that can be good because I, I get it right like it's uh it's very much so like getting a six pack except with steroids and then you have to deal with the heart failure down the road and, and whatnot um but this is one of the reasons i think developers after eight i think the average developer leaves a job every 18 months i think technical debt and there's a lot of reasons but technical debt is one of the reasons they at some point it just becomes so painful to work in that same application where you look at it and you're like oh my God, this thing that should be so trivial is just a monumental task and frustrating beyond belief because maybe I did it, maybe somebody else did it, but someone just hacked this shit together with no regard for us being able to expand upon it. And um, I think that there's a, a level of stress and anxiety and just frustration that come along with technical debt that probably should be accounted for by by more organizations. Let's pour one out for everyone that's working in those type of code bases. Yeah, pour some Soylent out for the whole homies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's, uh, let me jump into a new one. So let's talk about can my, my expectation when I was first starting off with was that we're going to have very easy and let me rephrase this. It has to, I had an expectation that, that the requirements that I was going to be getting from business would be easy enough for me to work on and to complete. And what I found in my career is that requirements are very tricky and that it's very easy for someone to deliver requirements to you that is either incomplete or you make assumptions that are wrong. And also requirements can change over time. And so it's kind of this weird balance between whoever's writing the requirements. Sometimes it's like a project analyst. Sometimes it's a project manager. Sometimes it's someone in the business. 
and how much details they put into the requirements when it's delivered to you and how much of those details should you just sort of take your best guess on. And there's, I, I had a manager once that had this analogy. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it's um, like we all love pizza. Like maybe you assume a feature is like a pizza. So if you get delivered a pizza, is it the pizza that you wanted versus the pizza that um, that you didn't order? So it's basically, it's still a pizza. It may be still the requirement, but it's not the exact the one that you ordered. So what would happen in some organizations, in some places, we would create features, we would get requirements, they would be vetted and, and we'd put story points and everything on them. The developers would work on those stories and get the feature done. And then near the end of the process, either at the demo or when it's nearly ready to go into production, someone in management would look at the feature and found out it's not exactly what they ordered. It's not exactly the feature that they wanted. And then we got to figure out where, where was this breakdown? Was it the breakdown because the requirements weren't uh, written correctly? Should like the, the project manager, the analyst spend 10 hours writing requirements and find every single edge case to put on there? Or was the developer taking too much leeway and trying to interpret the requirements a certain way? Was it just a, a bug? So like I've seen in every organization, this is always comes up and it also comes up too when it gets to QA. Because then QA is looking at the requirements and they're trying to interpret what the original writer of the requirements have and then what the developer created. And sometimes those things don't match. And sometimes things are kind of ambiguous and it doesn't really, it's not really clear if this should have happened. So I guess I, I should put this in an example. Like if I was creating a feature for, um, like uh, a feature for a page that had some inputs on it and it was like a form. Well, in the requirements, it didn't specifically call out that you should have like a floating label. But I'm assuming that since we have other labels in throughout our app, that we should have a floating label and that we should have a certain amount of error detection and correction. But that isn't explicitly written in the requirements. So now we have to interpret when it goes to QA and then when management looks at it, should have it had this error validation or not? Yeah, it's... um. You know, I didn't really think necessarily about how requirements would play out when I was getting started. But as I've been more and more, it feels almost like a game of telephone because typically you'll, you won't be the one gathering the requirements. And so you have this middleman, usually a business analyst or something like that, that will go and get the requirements and then tell you what they are. And then some things get lost in translation. And I, I also think of it in the same way of um, if you've ever you know, written an essay your brain will sort of just jump and make like words that should be there to, for it to be grammatically correct. Your brain will just skip over it a lot of times uh, unless you read it aloud. And so like by the time the developers get it, that have to read it aloud and actually implement it. We skipped over some things and um, you know, which is natural, right? As you dive into things there that the expectation that everything's going to be flushed out in every ticket isn't really realistic, but um, this is why I've, I've sort of had a weird, a weird I don't know, a thought about whether business analysts should exist as a role or not. And if they should, that they should be a developer that's part-time business analyst, part-time developer, or the project owner or the stakeholder should go directly to the development team to go and create tickets, which a lot of developers are going to hate, right? They're never going to want to write tickets. But I think 
it, eliminating the middleman and everything in life really has some great benefits. And those questions that you have from a technical perspective, you can ask in the moment rather than have to go back and get the feedback. But it's hard because you have to remember a lot of your your stakeholders are very busy people. They're you know they're the, they're the big boss man. Big boss man's got a lot of stuff going on, and so they don't necessarily want to be there every minute with the developers. They just want to have somebody that comes and does essentially is a pseudo stakeholder, usually BA to, to handle that. So some things get lost though. Yeah, I think, I think some things get lost. I think maybe my, my expectation of going to jobs was that this wouldn't be an issue, but it definitely is an issue. Like I didn't, if all the things I thought would be like issues when you start working as a developer, those didn't really cross my mind until I started working in the industry and how difficult this problem is most of the time some projects go pretty smoothly and everybody's happy but there's just one you just get one or two of those where like whoa why did this why did you code it this way or what why did this happen it's very interesting also i've heard the exam and the analogy analogy that that uh you write stories as in the perspective of the user and then you never write the how you always write the what so the how of how to implement what the story wants from the user perspective is um, the how is actually done by the developers. So there's kind of strategies like that. And we've tried in a couple of corporations that I've worked at to do that, but I don't, I don't think it's perfect. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a good way to go because you it, it sort of gets across what it is you're trying to do, but I, I keep finding, and this is goes back to sort of the hold the line and pushing back, is that you sort of get a lot of times people trying to push the how to speed the process along at times. And so uh, I don't know. Have, have you found that where, where all of a sudden you're, you're in your, your requirement gathering meetings or you're in your, um, you know, your, your sprint planning, all of a sudden the requirements have a little bit of a how to sort of circumvent the more the more time consuming method, but the better method long term. Yeah, exactly. We, we've definitely had things like that. We, definitely conversations have started getting into the how. Uh, we've also done things where we have the we have stories created, and then the developers create the tasks, and the tasks are more supposed to be for like specific things that the developer is going to do, and it's more of the how. So that's one way. We, we've comp, we've uh, tried to help with that problem. Uh, what what else do you got, Dylan? I don't want to keep talking about this too long. Yeah, uh, I mean, we could talk about shitty requirements for an entire podcast. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, I I guess I was surprised by how many roles were involved in a team. You know, I I I don't know if I didn't give any thought to it or what, but when I was looking for my first role. I, I really just had this assumption that there'd be senior devs, junior devs, and then um, you basically test your own code. But that wasn't re- really the reality, uh, depending on the organization and size and all that. But a lot of organizations are going to have business analysts, scrum master. I didn't know what scrum master was because I didn't know what agile was. Um, a project manager, a stakeholder, um, QA, QA manager. You have directors, tech technical leads and i'm sure a bunch more but i was really stunned by the i guess the various niches that make up a software team right so like take my team for instance we have about 12 members on it i think right now and six of them are developers but there's another six that make up the other 
other portion of the team. And I, I've always been sort of stunned by that, uh, especially when I first got going in my career. Yeah, there's so many. We had a whole episode on like different software development careers. I'll have to add that to the show notes. But yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of specialties, and there's new kind of new career paths opening up all the time. I think ten years ago, no one thought that data science was a career path or AI was just coming on the scene. But those are definitely career paths too. We have like in our organization, we have data, we have DBs, we have database administrators. We have DevOps, then inside our even development teams, we have backend, we have front end, we have architects. I mean, that that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and like UI UX and all these sort of little niches that are part of the team, I, I mean, I really just thought I was going to be working with one or two dudes and one was going to be a senior engineer and a bunch of juniors, and then we were just going to be hacking some shit out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's something that that I didn't realize either. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about conferences. Uh, you know, this is this is tech related. So I think you know when you first join this, uh, first your first development company, and you start seeing it's some of the things that you can do, and and one of the perks a lot of companies have is going to conferences. And when you first think about going to a conference, you're like, wow, you know, conferences is this utopian place where you'll meet all these cool people and you make, you know, maybe this is a little hyperbole, a little hyperbole here, but you'll make some lifelong friends and that's super valuable. And, and then the reality sets in when you go start going to conferences that first, if you're an introvert like me, just meeting random people is pretty tough and a little bit intimidating. I remember uh, I, I went to one of my conferences last year, maybe it was two years ago. And they had an after party. And so they do really, a lot of conferences really do push people together. They really want you to network because, I mean, it, as cliche as it sounds, a lot of the a lot of the value of conferences, the hallway talks, that's the people you talk to in between the when talks start and end. And they really push people together by having like lunches. And usually they'll have a, like a lunch room where they'll have big round tables and they encourage people to sit together. So it's not like a hundred tables and, and everybody's sitting alone or just with the people they came with. Uh, but then they also have after parties. And so like, I remember going to this after party thinking that, you know, cool, it's time for me to network with people. And then I get in this room. I don't know anyone. I didn't, no one from my company came with me. So I was a bunch of strangers I like I see one of the speakers and uh, she's like surrounded by like five guys that are just talking to her and just and and a few gals that are just kind of talking to her a bunch of stuff. So I'm like, well, I guess I could wait in line to talk to the speaker, but I don't really want to do that. So I see like these two random guys uh, just sitting outside the buffet and they had some appetizers in this in this uh, after party it was in this museum, I think. So I, I just like go up to them, I start talking, and you could tell right away, they were like, why are you entering, uh, interrupting us during our talk? And I'm like trying to jump into the call, uh, the, the conversation, and you they could see also like them looking away, like not looking at me, like looking for their escape plan. And so after a couple minutes, I'm like, okay, well, good talking to you guys. I'll see ya. So I was like, oh my God, I felt like that embarrassing feeling when like you talk to someone, it didn't go well. 
And so me being an introvert and not loving that, I, I found that, it, yes, you can have really meaningful relationships and meet cool people, but you got to really get out of your comfort zone. It, it's also one thing, too, I've noticed in conferences, a lot of companies bring like one, two, three people from their company, and they all stick together. So if you're coming by yourself and trying to meet people, you kind of have to infiltrate little groups of people. Like, oh, these people are from IBM, and there's three people there. So just kind of jumping into those conversations and trying to actually get meaningful um, talk is difficult. I, I actually went to ViewConf. I'll have one more anecdote. I went to ViewConf a couple, just last month in March, a couple months ago. And I, I was trying to network with people. I was talking to people during lunch, and then they had an after party. And I remember it was like um, on the bottom floor. That was three-floor building. I went up and went to the second floor. There was a bunch of people drinking, um, playing pool, talking. And then there was like five of us dudes just sitting outside where everybody's talking, just kind of looking at each other, kind of just being awkward. Like, should we try to jump into these different conversations? Um, and I was thinking like, I got to get better at this. And I don't think this is a problem for you, Dylan, but, um, may maybe it is. Wait, you just think I'm some fucking social butterfly over here? <laughs> oh my God. I, uh, when I went to the, um, when I spoke at the conference, we did a speaker's dinner, uh, the day before. And it was, I mean, I, I, it's so funny too, cause I'm excited by these things. Like, hell yeah, man, I'm going to meet some interesting people. I get there. I'm like nervous and sick to my stomach. It's like, but you know, you got to force yourself through it and whatnot. Um, honestly though, the, I, I can completely relate where you're jumping into a conversation and you know what I do in those situations? I literally say, Hey, I'm jumping into this conversation. I'll literally say that because I just like everyone. So everyone's on the same page. I'm trying to say hello and whatnot, but I, I completely understand sort of, being awkward and introvert but you know what you know what we're kind of lucky is that uh we're getting to the point where some people recognize us so we don't have to start the conversation like that's been really nice at some of these conferences i've gone to where somebody comes up like i don't have to you know there's people i want to go up to and whatnot but like it's nice people come up to me and then we can just talk you start the con it's much easier to continue a conversation when someone comes up to you and wants to talk to you than to like sort of throw yourself out there and be like hey want to talk to me and they're like nah dog <laughs> and it's like it's like oh man this is just like my dating life all of a sudden it's uh uh but yeah no i i, I get it it's it but it's it's been a great way to connect to people and i um as much as I, as much as I sort of have that same social anxiety and introvertness that goes with it, um, it's it's in, it's important to push past your comfort zone and to sort of go out there. And it's it's something that I've I've missed about that uh, about Angular uh, ng comp not being able to go because I I do like that networking. I do like meeting people and sort of um, seeing what you know everyone's about and sort of making those connections and. Um, you know, making some future colleagues potentially. I think if I had a wingman, it would be easier. Like if I had someone else, like we can both approach different groups. I think that'd be easier. I, 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 I definitely agree with, with, uh, with what you, what did you say first about um, your first tip about meeting people? Just like jump in and be like, Hey, uh, I'm jumping into this conversation. Like it, it just, everyone's on the same page. It's kind of funny. And like, it, usually it'll be some self-deprecating humor. I'm like, Hey, I don't want to look like the weird guy that's just sitting in the corner. So I'm jumping in like, <laughs> like you just, you know, whatever, but 
if 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 that that's what I have to do to feel like I'm not being weird. Maybe that's a weird thing to say, but that's usually how I roll. Yeah, exactly. That that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, just trying to jump into those conversations. Some people I've also heard of just give yourself like a three second rule. So if you go into a room and you see someone you want to talk to, don't if you just sit there for like thirty seconds, you're gonna talk yourself out of it and then you're kind of that weird guys just like staring from afar but like oh, i don't want to talk to those people but just like getting overcoming that fear and 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 just talking to people i'm still really bad at it and i do like your point about if people start coming up to you so in ViewConf, i did have a, a few people that recognized me but a couple of people also recognized me and didn't come up to me and then i talked to them later and it's like, oh, I know who you are. I'm like, oh, you could should have come and said hi to me. But they had the same anxiety that I had, that I have, and they don't like to go and bother people that they know. Um, it's also kind of cool. I will say one thing, good thing about conferences is if you've been in, like, I know a lot of people in the VIEW community now. I know a lot of the core team members. I've seen them. Um, and to actually meet some of those people in person has been, like, awesome. Like, a lot of those people... I'll be like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, uh, who are you? I'm Eric. Oh, I know who you are. And it's really cool like to finally meet people and build those relationships. Uh, still, though, I'm pretty bad at, at the networking part. I don't think I've gotten really very good at networking at conferences other than with people I sort of already knew from online. I've never met like a random person from a company. And, and even I don't, like I don't get emails. I don't like get their cards. You know, it, I'm really bad at that. I think there's probably a better way I could do networking. Yeah, I, you know what? It's it's easier when most of the people you're networking with are men. I feel more uncomfortable trying to network with women because I always feel like there's this expectation that you're hitting on them. Like I don't know, and maybe maybe it's maybe I'm wrong, but like you know, I I just feel like as a as a man, you you have to maybe take a little bit extra caution. And be like, hey, let me get your email. Let me get your your number, whatever it is. Uh, but like if, if you're running into a lot of, uh, like for instance, um, Lee who has the, um, God, I'm forgetting the, uh, the name of his podcast. Um, what was it called? Uh, I was just on a little tech junior podcast. I remember talking to him. Oh, you got podcasts. I got podcasts. Great. Let's, uh, exchange emails or LinkedIn. I don't remember what we changed. And it's, it's a very professional sort of thing. And it's, it's a little more, natural at times than like i don't know like you you get what i'm trying to say here like like i'm not trying yeah, to make yeah. anybody feel uncomfortable and like that that's that's where the anxiety comes in it's like oh hey here's this girl who has like a a podcast or something cool right so what, whatever it is that attracts me or I mean, it makes me interested in her as a software engineer but like oh man is she gonna think i'm hitting on her oh no it's like what if, what if you know she thinks i'm creep being a creeper and then uh, but it's a lot of times, uh, as you said, it, it's just you're overthinking things, right? That's all it is. And um, I know at the last conference I went to, there was this young couple who were like maybe 20 and they were just like across the room and they were so nervous to say hi that they just sort of waved at me <laughs> and I walked over and um, basically the girlfriend did all the talking because the guy was just so, I don't know, he's just, he's just uh, uncomfortable and then, um, but it was fine. Talked in a little bit, like, and, and a lot of people are just like us, man. We don't bite. We're just, just happy to talk to other people in the field and, and say hello. Do, so you, I've never done this in any conference and I've, hand, and I've only been to a handful, but I've never like asked someone for the email address or Twitter account, unless they're like a vendor. 
then they usually ask for my email address so they can spam me later or they make me sign up for some sort of giveaway, but it's really just like marketing for them. And I would even, yeah, I'd be super nervous to like talk to a woman at a conference, even if I, you know, I thought she was an amazing speaker or had a, a conference and, or had a podcast and then ask her for her email or her, her information. I don't know. I guess I've never done that. Maybe I should start doing that. Maybe if like, uh, I get a really good conversation with somebody, I'll be like, Hey, can I get your Twitter account or email or. I find LinkedIn is pretty appropriate because then it's sort of a professional level. But I'll tell you right now, as nervous as I've been in the past going up to women, I'm legitimately looking to date software engineers. Like that would, that would be a pretty good person in my life. So I will not have the same hesitation I've had in the past because like, you know, when are you ever going to run into a bunch of uh, people that you're interested in and in, in the same industry? Uh, but you got to you got to keep it professional. Pick up the signs and hence. I'd be like, hey, oh, girl, yeah. yeah, you know, you know, I'm a coding god, right? That's going to be my, my pickup line. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I know Dylan's joking, but it, it, it there's a lot of um, rules of conduct, too, in, in conferences and how you interact with attendees. In, in, and and there's always horror stories of attendees, especially women who have people that that uh, pretend like that, you know, it, it's a uh, networking, but they think it's more dating. So obviously you have to be very careful with things like that and, and people's comfort levels and and just be very cautious, I would say. Uh, let, do you have another one for expectations? Um, Dylan? I mean, we, we pretty much covered it. A lot of it is just the interactions with the business, the meetings, the agile aspect. I, I would say the one, the one last one I'd probably like to touch on is uh, sort of a two-part one. One, I had no idea what testing was in regards to like unit testing and end testing when I started. And then two, when I did, I had no idea how rampant it would be for organizations not to value it when I think it brings so much value. Get my mute. Th- yeah, it, I think the same thing. I had, I had a very similar one on my list. Um, but I think I think it, it's, it goes back to also that a best practices, quote unquote, best practices are very debated at every single uh, organization that I've been in. Sometimes there's a consensus on what the best practice is, and maybe your organization thinks that testing is highly valued and that it should be done. But then there's other organizations where they don't value testing. And the kind of the best practices for one organization isn't necessarily the same for the for another organization. And sometimes we have to really deep, deep dive why we think these are best practices. Is it because someone in some blog post told us somewhere or is it really makes sense for our business? Uh, that that's that was my point that I was going to make on expectation versus reality that I thought that there was more consensus in the industry of how we're supposed to do things. Like, cool, we're going to create software. We're going to create tests for it. We're going to do this agile methodology. We're going to uh, do a CICD pipeline. We're going to do this. But when you get into the real world, everybody has a different idea of what the best practices are and, and there isn't super agreement through everyone what those are and testing. Yeah. One of them more yeah. Test testing is one of the first things thrown out in, in a, a misguided effort for speed. And uh, it breaks my heart. Pour one out for all the testers out there. <laughs> Well, for one out for all the developers have to maintain these legacy applications that have no testing. Um, I won't even work on an app if we don't write tests for it. Um, I, it ain't for me. 
there's a couple things that I look for. One, are we going to be doing testing, at least unit testing? Great. Do I have to maintain IE? Yeah. All right. Sorry. I got to I gotta go. I'm not, I'm not interested in that at all. You're very principled on that way. I'm like, yeah, I'll, yeah we'll I'll see. With the we'll see. I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll get laid off and then uh, all these principles go out the window real quick when I need a paycheck. So, but no, I, uh, but it's, so here's the thing. It goes back to happiness, man. And like the technical debt frustration and all that there, I mean, would you, there, there's a weird, there's this weird thing with software where the, we're willing to let so much slide because it's this sort of intangible object. There's not a physical item at hand. And for some reason, this is let people decide that it can just be so malleable that there aren't any consequences. And the reality is, is there's a lot of consequences and that these things sort of build up over time. And the unfortunate truth is that there's technical individuals that understand it. And then there's the other less technical individuals that, that don't. Uh, but typically, it's the less technical individuals who are in charge of the the paychecks and are in charge of the feature delivery. And, you know, the marketing companies usually are the ones driving the interest and not software engineers. Um, so it's uh, it's just one of the um, it's one of the um, truths about the industry that I don't think is ever going to change to the nature of business. All right. Well, that, that's all I have bit- today. What was that? Leave it on that depressing. I was gonna say, leave it on that depressing <laughs> note of mine. <laughs> oh wait, you know I do have. I'll have a, a positive one here. So I'll do this real quickly. Conferences or uh, not conferences? I already did conferences. Meetups, <laughs> meetups and presentations. The first time I was thinking about doing a meetup presentation, I was so nervous. I was thinking that people were gonna be super critical. That there was gonna be like a hundred people there. And I was going to be sweating and that it would take weeks to work on. But the reality was when I actually went and did a, my first meetup presentation, it was like so fun to do. Like people were really encouraging. They did ask some hard questions, but I just said, I don't know. And no one like, you know, judged me on that. Um, So like going to meetups, being more involved in that scene, doing presentations have been uh, very awesome. And also it's usually not that many people. I mean, Unless you're in a real popular tech hub, you only get like 10, 20 people at most. So I, I really, I thought I really enjoyed that. That was a fun experience. And my expectations were, were uh, definitely, I guess, changed for the best. For the best. We'll yes. leave it at that. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Peace out. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you want to find more about what I'm up to, go to dylanisrael.com. And if you want to know what I'm up to, you can check out my website at eric.video. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And if you do, you might even be featured on our next episode. Don't forget to check out the website at selftaughtornot.com. From there, you can sign up for a mailing list where we give away free courses and a bunch of cool stuff. And we'll also let you know when the next episode comes out. And finally, if you didn't know, we have a Facebook group. It's called Code Tech and Caffeine. We have over 10,000 members. And you can find the link at selftaughtornot.com. So come join us. We have tons of developers willing to help you guys, mentor you guys. Check it out. Just make sure you go to selftaughtornot.com and check out the Code Tech and Caffeine link. Thanks and take care.